Welcome to the Southside Sermons Podcast. I am Christopher Campbell, pastor of Southside Baptist Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. This message you're about to hear is from God's Word and is offered to you with this prayer that God would give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey His Word. May your faith be strengthened in Jesus, and may you grow in your knowledge of Him. I urge us to think together about the way love is elevated among the three abiding graces. Verse 13 again says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these. That word greatest is a relative word, meaning it exists in relationship with other things. Something cannot be the greatest if it is the only. I say that my son is my greatest son, but he's also my only son. This means the life that God gives us, the life lived by the Holy Spirit is multifaceted. It has many sides to it. It consists of more than one side, more than one grace. First John chapter four, verse eight, reveals this about God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We've all heard that, right? God is love, and that is true. But God is not only love. The word also reveals to us that God is spirit. God is light. God is unchanging. God is holy. God is just. God is a consuming fire. God is righteous. God is truth. And lest we think that we could ever fully describe God, the word tells us further that God's judgments are unsearchable and his ways are incomprehensible. That's our God. We cannot put God in a box. And many have tried to do that. It's called idolatry. It's called fashioning God after our own image. God does not fit in a box of our making. God does not fit within our dictionary of words for describing him. God is love, but God is not only love. Beyond this, God is not just an idea to be described. God is living, and so he acts. God reveals his nature to us through his word and through his works, such that his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that there is no excuse for not knowing the Creator, God, who loves. Oftentimes, we humans just want to know God through one characteristic. We filter our understanding of God through one adjective, one attribute, or one theme. And this leads to scary misunderstandings and misinterpretations. If you believe, for example, that God is only love, then eventually love becomes to you God. Life then becomes all about love rather than all about God. 
And without God, love loses its meaning. This is why the world distorts love so easily. This is why we, the church, revolt at most of the ideas and practices of the world in the name of love. It's not love without God, for God is love. God is also truth, God is also righteous. God is love, but love is not God. I encourage us all not to think about God in such a limited way and to not think about love in such a limited way either. Love itself, as defined by God, is multifaceted. There are many sides. And we are in danger of wrongly treating love as we wrongly treat God by making too much of only one side of love, by making too much of only one aspect of love. And if we do that, we end up losing the truth about love altogether. Craig Blomberg helps us with this warning. Listen to what he says. It's often been observed that one could substitute the word Jesus for love throughout verses four through seven of this text. Indeed, as the only sinless person in human history, Jesus provides the perfect model for helping us to understand what patience, kindness, lack of envy, and so on are. In doing so, we also guard against misinterpreting these attributes. If Jesus was all loving, but could clear the temple in righteous indignation, or unleash a torrential invective against the hypocrisy of the conservative religious leaders of his day, he's a commentator, so he has to use big words, then our concept of love must leave room for similar actions. Church Blomberg cautions us from saying of someone else's actions, that's not loving, or accusing a person of not acting in love, because we do not define what love is. We are not interpreters of love. God defines love. God reveals love, and he interprets it through Jesus Christ, his son. Quoting Lewis Smedes, Blomberg points out further that being patient does not mean tolerating evil. Being kind does not mean you cannot at the same time be both intelligent and tough. He says that if someone were to run off with your spouse, it would be loving and even right for you to be upset about it, amen? This love of God, the word here is agape, is multifaceted in that it gives permission at times to be angry and still be loving. And it allows for us to be irritated and at the same time to still love. I hope this brings some freedom to some of you. Our marriages prove this as well. While we are in a union, we may disagree, we may fight or be angry at times, but we're nevertheless held together in the bonds of this multifaceted thing called love. Love is more than a feeling. Love is a wonderful grace of God that allows us to experience all the bands of human emotion that God has created, but to experience each one rightly and appropriately, lovingly. 
Love is given and received in different ways by different people. For some, it is loving to serve and be served. For others, it is loving to give and receive. For some, it is loving to speak and receive words of affirmation. God created us all to love, but we all value different expressions of love. It is multifaceted. With this in mind, church, the apostle is speaking to a multifaceted church in Corinth that is experiencing many problems. And when you have a body experiencing many problems, it needs a multifaceted solution. Simple is not always sufficient for complex situations. The church needs a multifaceted grace, and that grace is this multifaceted love. The congregation in Corinth is divided. There are schisms. This chapter 13 is written in the context of all of this as has gone before. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. They are fellowships, not fellowship, as the apostle says. This congregation in Corinth is deceived. How many times has the apostle repeated these words? Do you not know? I do not want you to be ignorant. I do not want you to be uninformed. They did not know the truth of God's word, and they were certainly not living by it. They were not standing with the truth. They allowed an evil person living in blatant and public sin, the kind of which the Gentiles don't even do, to remain among them in the church with no consequence. They boasted about their own wisdom and sued one another in public courts. They dishonored the apostle and his ministry, who was God's gift to him, by not caring for him as God had intended for them to do. This congregation in Corinth is disgraceful. They gather to worship and partake of the Lord's Supper, but fail to discern those who are needy among them. Instead, those who have take more and get drunk on what belongs to the Lord for his body. They do not remember how Christ gave up his own body by being obedient to God's will and humbling himself before God. They boast about their gifts and envy the gifts of others. They operate as parts and not as a whole. God did not give the church in Corinth a simple solution. A simple solution to their multifaceted problems would have been to wipe them out. Immediate judgment, turn off the switch, give up a clean slate, start over. But instead, God gives them a spiritual solution. God gives us a spiritual solution, not a fleshly one, not a carnal one, but a spiritual one called love because God loves them. God loves you. God loves us. They are his church and we are his church bought by the blood of his son, Jesus, who died for us. And love, as we learn, is not simple. Love is spiritual and love is sacrificial. 
Love is not selfish. Love is consumed with care for God and the other person. So here the apostle seems to interrupt his discussion of spiritual gifts to weave together spiritual graces. No spiritual gift is worth anything without spiritual grace. In other words, no spiritual gift is effective without the Spirit of God working that gift for his gracious purposes in the church. As F.F. Bruce says, more important than the gifts of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. No fruit, no gift. And what is the first fruit of the Spirit? Say it with me, church. Love. F.F. Bruce again says a Christian community can make shifts somehow if the gifts of chapter 12 be lacking, it will die if love is absent. The most lavish exercise of spiritual gifts cannot compensate for lack of love. It's often said that you don't know what you have until it's what? Gone. The apostle views love that way and goes as far as to say that when love is gone, what we have, in fact, is nothing. These first three verses can be described with this heading, when love is absent, verses one through three, when love is absent. And by virtue of him speaking about love being absent, we learn that it is possible to not have love. It is possible to be unloving. And because this is possible, it is a sin for the church to avoid. There's nothing that we can do to separate us from the love of Christ, but be on guard, church, that we do not lose the love of the Spirit of Christ that God has so graciously given us. Here's the situation the apostles suggest could happen. Look with me at verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The noisy gong and clanging cymbal were obvious noisemakers. One translator calls them resonating jars or reverberating cymbal. These were instruments used to amplify sound to produce noise. F.F. Bruce says, such as were used in various well-known cults, producing much sound but little sense. They're noise. But the apostle doesn't say they are noise, speaking of those instruments. He says in verse one, I am noise. I become noisy when I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Look with me at verse two. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and If I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Our gifts mean nothing if not handled with grace, with love. More poignantly, I am nothing in that case if what I have is not accompanied with love. One commentator said this is true of our attributes It's also true of our achievements. Love matters not only for what we have, but also for what we do. Look at verse three. 
If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Here we see love revealed as something selfless. Is giving away all I have selfless? Yes. Is delivering up my body to be burned if required an act of martyrdom, an act of sacrifice? Is that selfless? Yes. But for what reason are you giving it all away? For what reason are you sacrificing? These selfless acts gain nothing for us if we do them without something called love, which means that we can give everything we have away and still be doing it for ourselves and not for another. We can give up our lives and still be seeking our own gain in that act and not the gain of another. Love is revealed as selfless by nature. And so when love is absent, I am noise. I am nothing. I gain nothing. And now we turn to the second section of this text, which teaches us that love is not just a thing. Love is not just an idea. Love is not just a word. It is an action. You can say that you love me, but what does that mean if that's all you do is talk? That talk doesn't serve me. That talk doesn't build me up. That talk doesn't seek my well-being. A young man and a Young woman, date in court, and the woman hears the words, I love you, I love you, but eventually, and it may be a while, and it can be a while, but eventually those words ring hollow without a ring on the finger, amen? Jesus knows the things that grip our heart and squeeze out love. Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's loving what others have for the sake of oneself. For one's life, Jesus says, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there, I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man had many things. He enjoyed many years, he thought, but he was a selfish man, he was a foolish man, and he ended up with nothing. In Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Guard against this. Your treasure will reveal what you love. What you do with your treasure will reveal the things that you love. This is what happens when love is active. This section reads to us in English as if love is being described with many, I think 14, adjectives, descriptors. But the Greek reveals something different that our English does not 
convey. The Greek reveals love being described not with adjectives, but with actions. These words in verses four through seven are not adjectives, they're verbs. And so love is chiefly known not through descriptors, but through deeds. Love acts. Love acts both upon us as individuals and also upon others in relationships. Look with me at verse 14. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Patience understands timing. It may or not be the right time to act, and so love knows how to wait. Love doesn't brag about oneself. It doesn't puff up. That's the word there, arrogant. We've seen it before. It's the word puff up. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, that says, this knowledge puffs up. Same word. But love builds up. Love is not like a balloon that keeps inflating itself until it finally pops. Instead, it inflates the other person. It is generous toward others. It is not arrogant. Verse five, it's also not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love is not rude, meaning it does not behave dishonorably. It is not going to insult another or embarrass another. It does not insist on its own way. Literally, that says, it does not seek the things of itself. Circle or underline or highlight that word its in verse five. Its, itself. That is where the emphasis is, itself. That's not love. Church, my prayer and desire to lead us in love is not to lead us according to my way. I hope you've heard that. Not to lead us according to our way but to align my way and our way to God's revealed way. What is it that I've said from the very beginning? We are to be God's people who do God's will. We are to be God's people who do God's will as revealed in God's word. That is, I believe, as I understand it, the essence of love, a love that seeks first God and second neighbor, the other. Love is not irritable or resentful. This does not mean it does not get irritated, but it doesn't stay irritated. It does not become transformed into a persistent, negative, unrighteous anger. Love does not incite anger. Love does not become resentful. Literally, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not allow a root of bitterness to creep in and take hold in the heart so that it grows forth a tree of sin. Love doesn't hold a grudge. Look with me at verse six. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Literally, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. This verse is a great example of the multifaceted, multi-sided nature of this love that we've been talking about. It would be wrong for you to be unconcerned and unmoved and apathetic, lifeless 
when unrighteousness is being done, when the truth is being trampled upon. Love rejoices in the truth. That means love must know the truth. Look at John chapter eight, verse 32 on the screens. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That is why by God's design, it is the most loving thing for pastors in God's church, a preacher and teacher of the word, to be devoted to the word of truth and the prayers and not distracted from these things. For by the truth, God's people are led in love. Parents and grandparents, rejoicing in the truth may mean loving your children and grandchildren in a way that doesn't feel so loving to you. Is discipline ever a loving task? Is that ever enjoyable for the parent or grandparent? It may mean you have to stop supplying that child with the provisions and protections that are fueling their unrighteous passions and errors for their sake. This same love that gives us permission to give to another also gives us permission at the same time to withhold from another because it cares most of all for the other. Love rejoices in the truth. This means it doesn't erect a facade. Do you know what a facade is? A facade is an outward appearance that conceals a less pleasant or credible reality. A facade is appearing as if everything is wonderful when in fact it is wretched. Church, we do not love anyone when we hide the truth or mask the truth or conceal the truth. If what we do as the people of God cannot be done in the open or said in the open, it probably isn't truth. And it most certainly then isn't love. Love exposes the truth, the good, the bad, and even the ugly. That's what the light of God's word does as it shines into the shadows, illuminating the darkness. That's what the spirit of truth does through this grace of love. Look at Ephesians chapter four, verse 15. The apostle says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This is what happens when love acts. Look at verse seven. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The word bears does not mean love communicates everything as if we're bearing it all. It means love covers everything. It is a protection. It's a shelter from the storm. It rained this morning as we were entering the church and I popped up an umbrella and Marianne popped up an umbrella and under each of our umbrella, one of our kids stood and grabbed onto our hands and the handles and walked in sheltered from the falling rain. That's what love does when it bears all things. It shields, it covers, it protects. Love believes all things, it trusts completely. This means love is not suspicious, assuming, accusing. It has confidence in the other person. It assumes, if anything, the best in them. 
love endures all things. Meaning humans will fail to love rightly. We all have and we all will. But for the sake of the other, we endure difficulties. We put up with suffering. For the sake of time, I will leave off teaching this last section for now because this is a lot to digest, church. And perhaps later this week, I'll teach on the rest of this chapter. But I think at this word, enduring, we can come together to a conclusion. And not just any conclusion, but the Christ conclusion. For Christ gave us this kind of love by giving of himself fully to the will of God and sacrificially for another, for us. Church, we remember today that Christ endured. He endured a sham of a trial of lies. He endured the blasphemy and the beatings. He endured the public embarrassment and humility, the whip and the nails and the crown of thorns. Jesus endured the scorn of the cross for all to see. For all to see love. Why did Jesus endure these things? Have you thought about it? He had the power to speak a word and be delivered and proven that he is the truth. He had the power to speak a word and be defended by legions of angels. He had the power to speak a word and dismiss the entire ordeal of Calvary. And Jesus had the right to speak that word. But as Jesus hung on the cross, it wasn't about him. It wasn't about his will. It was about his father's will and his father's glory. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It took love to set us free. It took love to save us from our own wretched sin and the wrath that we deserve. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. Christ died for us. We are the sinners, not loving God enough to hear his word and live by it. Rather, we chose and we choose to love our lives and live unto ourselves. It's our fallen nature. It's the human condition. And God would be just to throw us all into hell and the lake of fire. And that is what we deserve but God, that's the gospel message, but God. The scriptures say that we are dead as we are in sin, but God so loved that he met us in our dead condition. For this reason, Christ died 
And Christ was buried to meet us where we needed him the most. And God raised Christ from the dead, and with him, God raises all of us who receive God's love through faith in Christ. And this means that all who hear these words and receive them by faith may be forgiven. There is no condemnation in Christ. Have you failed to love? Absolutely. Have you really messed up in acts of love? Most definitely. But you are not beyond forgiveness. I am not beyond forgiveness. For not even death could separate us from this love of Christ. Christ met us where we were in our unloving state and Christ overcame our sin through his selfless, sacrificial, serving love. Jesus emptied himself and became nothing that we might receive everything through faith in Christ who is our only hope. We cannot see faith but we live by it. We cannot see hope, but we know we have it. But church, we can see love, for God has shown it to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is what, church? Love. Thank you again for listening to this message. I pray that God would accomplish his purpose in you through the preaching, hearing, receiving, and believing of his word. If you wish to share any comments or questions about the message you have heard, please call Southside at 256-353-8814 or visit us on the web at southsidebaptist.net. Also, make sure to subscribe or follow this podcast to receive a new message each week.